Good morning, friends. How are we all? Good. That was great. So to begin, would you please raise your hand if you're a fan of the Hunger Games series? Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. All right, quite a few. Great. Anyone over here? Not really. So, hi, good morning. My name is Peter. I'm the ministry apprentice here. And to you guys who put your hand out, I'm going to say a big sorry because I'm actually not a fan. Uh, but I am a friend of, I am a fan of dystopian movies. So if you don't know that genre, typically uh, they're set in the distant future where technology has improved beyond recognition, uh, but humans are just still as evil. Typically you have your leaders who have recreated a social order that benefits only themselves, uh, usually with the use of technology or brainwashing or genetic modification and so on. And then you have your main characters who one day realize that they can challenge the system. And so the story is about them going on a journey of self-discovery and their struggle against the authorities to return society to what it's meant to be. See, friends, what I love most about these movies is not the action or the sci-fi, but it's the multitude of ethical questions that are brought up along the way. You see, each character is constantly trying to work out for themselves what is the right way to live. Do I trust the system, or do I rebel against it, even if it's hurting my, as it's hurting my friends? Do I speak up, or do I stay quiet? Do I protect the few, or make sacrifices for the greater good? See, again and again, they find themselves asking, what is the right way for me to live? And friends, we also ask that question, don't we? As we journey through life, trying to figure out what to do with our money, our relationships, opportunities, our energy. In our efforts to find the right way to live, what do we turn to? When I asked some of you this week, almost all of you answered parents and family. But when we think about it, can our parents really be our ultimate source of direction? Surely you would agree that they provide great guidance, they love us, and they're wise. But sometimes we feel like they don't really understand our world. And sometimes when we get older, their idea of success becomes very different to ours, and great conflicts arise. Do we then turn to our friends? But more often than not, they're no more experienced than we are in what we're going through. Do we turn to society, culture, science? But even these things are changing a million miles an hour, and what is true today may not be true tomorrow. So how can we know what is the right way to live? How can we be sure? Friends, today we're going to take a look at how the Bible answers that question. Whatever old system of living and thinking that we're used to, today's passage offers a new way, and we're going to explore that in three parts. Firstly, leave the old life. Secondly, new but not finished. And thirdly, live as new people. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Follow along there. If you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, and because we've been away for a little while, Ephesians is a letter by a missionary named Paul to the ancient city of Ephesus. In the first half of the letter, he writes about a lot of spiritual truths. And now in the second half, he's telling the Ephesians what it really means for their lives practically. In the first part of today, today's passage, he encourages them to leave the old life. Please follow along from verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and therefore of greed. Last year, I almost dropped my friend off the side of a mountain during his box. So long story short, being a bunch of guys, we thought we'd do something manly and exciting and adventurous, and we decided to tackle Mount Biwa. But we we were so, so unprepared. And before we knew it, our groom had slipped from 10 meters up, he'd lost his footing, and he was just sliding down the bare rock face on his hands with his hands out trying to stop himself, and we're just watching helpless. By the time we get home, he's bleeding everywhere, and there's pus coming out, and it's, it's a bloody mess. And we feel like total idiots because his wedding was only a few weeks away. Unfortunately, the hike was my idea, and to this day, I have, I've never spoken to his fiancée about it. But sometimes I think, what if it wasn't 10 meters? What if it was 30, 50? I really could have killed my friend. How could I have been so stupid? The truth is, they were very inexperienced, and I should, I should never have taken them on this hike. But when I think about it, it's clear that one thing led to the next. It was a bus trip, a bunch of guys egging each other on, and here I was telling them about how these girls from my church had done it before, and you guys will be fine. And what happened was we became progressively blind to the truth that climbing this mountain was a really, really bad idea. In today's passage, Paul begins by saying to the Ephesians, you must no longer live the old life like the Gentiles who don't know God. But what is this old life? Here he describes it as a life that becomes progressively blind to the truth. Just like how step-by-step my blindness almost got my friend killed. Paul is saying that the old life without God is a step-by-step progression towards very dire consequences. This is the old life that we all need to leave behind. If we look closely, we'll see Paul use the joining words because and due to to describe this progression. Paul says that people living the old life are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So when we put this into order, the progressive blindness begins with the hardening of the heart. The word hardening here can also mean blind or dull. This describes loss of feeling and indifference or the loss of sensitivity, as Paul puts it. Just like how I became desensitized to the dangers of climbing that mountain, those who continue to sin become desensitized to the truth to to what sin is really doing in their lives, to the damage that it's doing. Number two, Paul says that not only have they become numb, they become ignorant of the truth. He also describes this as futility of thinking or darkening of understanding. The truth that I lost sight of was the reality of our climbing abilities versus how hard the mountain was. But those who live in sin lose sight of the truth of God who he is, and who he created them to be. Thirdly, Paul says that this leads to separation from the life of God. Because God is our creator and sustainer, this means spiritual and eternal death. This is the ultimate consequence for those who live life apart from God. And fourthly, 
Separation from God leads to a life given over to sensuality. And the next part can be translated as, so to indulge in every kind of impurity with a greediness for more. And so Paul's saying that this old life without God leads to an endless pursuit of passions and desires that can never truly satisfy. Friends, you might be thinking, well, I'm definitely not indulging in every kind of impurity. Uh, I don't think Paul is talking about me here. But if we take a good honest look at some of the unhealthy and sinful habits of our lives, we may just see this old life at work. Maybe for you it's a gaming addiction, uh, eating irresponsibly, shopping excessively, gossiping, gossiping about people behind their backs, or just spending way too much time on Netflix. See, the more we do these things, the more we become desensitized, and it's just a normal lifestyle thing. Maybe you haven't been completely honest with your spouse. Or maybe you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend and that's what you're struggling with. Maybe you're covering up mistakes at work, finding dishonest ways to get through your studies, or doing something questionable with financial gain, or secretly viewing pornography. And we do these things because they feel good, right? But Paul is saying here, the more we do them, the more we become desensitized to the damage that they're doing to us, to our relationship with others, and our relationship with God. See, after losing that sense of danger, he says that we start to lose sight of the truth as well. And we know that we do that by making excuses for ourselves and rationalizing sins in our mind. Have listening to these, have listened to these following excuses and see if you use them in the past. We say, everyone else is doing it. Well, it's not really hurting anyone, is it? I haven't done this in a while. Maybe this one time is okay. Or I'm a, I'm a single person. My life situation made me do it. Or, or someone else forced me to do it. If they didn't do the A, then I wouldn't have done B. At least I'm not doing something worse. I do so much good. I work so hard. Surely it's okay to have this one little sin. This thing helps me to relieve stress so that I can better love God and serve others again. And that's why I'm doing it. But friends, when we think like that, we're doing exactly what Paul is describing here. We're hardening our hearts, we're becoming ignorant to the truth, darkening in our understanding, futile in our thinking, and indulging in impurity with a greediness for more. This is the old way of life that we have to leave, because ultimately it leads to death. Notice also that when Paul wrote this to the Ephesians, he's gone them to no longer live this old life, not that they're still stuck in this old life. That means if you're a Christian today, you've been rescued from this old way of living that leads to death. You may still sin, but Paul is saying you've been given new life. So get serious about new living. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, as Paul's words can demonstrate to you that there is no hope and no future apart from God. But the good news is that you don't have to stay there. There is a better way of living. But firstly, we need to leave the old life. As we continue in the passage, Paul begins to describe a different kind of life. It's a life that's new, but not finished. Please follow along from verse 20. 
That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you learned about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. For those of you who don't know, I come from a background in architecture, and in architecture we always say, there's no such thing as finishing a design. You only ever run out of time. You see, even when we present something great and new to the client, and they love it, and they think it's, it's perfect, in the architect's mind anyway, it's just a work in progress. Even when something beautiful like this is built, it's just a snapshot of what was evolving in the architect's mind. And so in our minds, you can never actually finish a design. In the same way, Paul tells the Ephesians that the Christian life is new, but it's not finished. They've left the old life with this progression towards blindness and spiritual truth. But even then, they're far from perfect. That's the reason Paul tells them to put off their old self, to be made new in the attitude of their minds, and then to put on the new self. Friends, notice how the old and the new are contrasted here. Show that the new is by far better. The old is firstly being corrupted and wasting away. The new is freshly created. The old is deceitful while the new is true. The old is based on desires and passions while the new is based on righteousness and holiness. So how can we move from the old life to the new life? The answer lies in the middle, to be made new in the attitude of our minds. You see, what has to happen is not some mystical and spiritual experience or feeling. It's actually something that we know and believe and become convicted of in our minds and in our hearts. If we look around this passage here, Paul emphasizes this by using words like learned, and taught, truth, and true. Ultimately, what we need to know and believe is the truth that is in Jesus. That he is the Son of God who came to earth as a man to suffer and die for our sins. And that by rising again, he breaks this power of sin and death over all those who believe in him. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is how you move from the old life to the new life. And if you are a Christian, this is how you continue to put off the old put on the new. But friends, don't we so often think that the new life is finished? See, this plays out in two ways in our minds. Either we end up thinking that sin doesn't matter because we're already saved. Who cares? It doesn't matter how I live. Or, on the flip side, we expect ourselves to be perfect because we're finished, right? And we become crushed under unrealistic expectations. Paul is saying here that, no, know that your lives are new, but they're not finished. It means that we can take sin seriously to do battle against it, while knowing that we're still work in progress. It means that, for me, even as I consider ministry, I know that I am still so sinful. And for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, you all know that we continue to fight against sin every single day of our lives. You see, in our present state, the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin remains. 
And so we continue to come to God in humble trust and prayer. So in this second section, Paul is telling us that we need to keep putting off the old and putting on the new. And we can do that by being renewed by the truth that is in Jesus. Remember that when you become Christian, your life is new but not finished. Paul doesn't just end there. He continues on to provide some practical advice for how this all works. He tells them that they have to live as new people. Please follow along from verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has me stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So friends, there's a lot going on there. I'll let you have a look at that carefully. But we can see, sorry, uh, but what we can see from this passage, and this very confusing diagram, I'll highlight, is that Paul talks about four new ways of living. He calls the Ephesians to live as new people, firstly in speech, in forgiveness, in generosity, and in sacrificial love. I'm not going to leave that there because it's too many colors and too confusing. Uh, but what I am going to do is step you through each of them and give us some very practical ways to live in each of these four areas. Friends, you're going to need your Bibles open uh, because I'll be referring back to the text. And please stay with me as we get really practical because Paul does. Okay. So the first instruction that Paul gives in verse 25 is to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. This false speech may refer to flattery uh, or lies or gossip and generally not meaning what we say. But one specific area I think we can really improve on this is not masking criticism as jokes. You see, we have this tendency to see something annoying in somebody and instead of confronting them and giving them constructive feedback, we make a joke out of it, right? For example, if I come to, if I say to a friend, yeah, I'm really committed to church, but I'm always missing life group. And when I finally come, someone says to me, Hey, Peter, you're here. What a miracle. Praise the Lord. Is that a good thing to say? Well, it's actually really hurtful because aren't you indirectly accusing me of being flaky and uncommitted and maybe even unfaithful? Instead, what we can say to someone like that is, Hey, I noticed you haven't been around. What's been happening? Are you okay? And when we have that conversation, let's be prepared to follow through with support that they need. See, I'm not saying that we can't joke around, 
but let's not mask what is actually really hurtful criticism as a joke. Secondly, in verse 29, Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word here for unwholesome can also mean filthy or rotten. So like rotten fruit or or filthy garbage, we need to find that type of unwholesome talk disgusting. Instead, what does he say should be coming out of our mouths? He says, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Friends, so often we love talking because we want to voice our opinion. We want to ask for something for ourselves or, or we just want to be funny. But Paul is saying here, don't speak what you want to say. Speak what others need to hear. The word benefit in verse 29 is actually the word for grace. So instead of speaking rotten garbage, our words should be gifts of grace to someone else. Friends, speak to benefit others. You might be thinking, what does that even mean? How how, how can my words be gifts of grace? Well, one great way to do that is to speak God's promises to each other. And don't worry, you don't have to go to Bible college to be able to do this. At, at the back of my Bible, I have a list of verses for different situations that people might be going through. So say if a friend is sinning and really struggling, instead of saying to him, well, you better stop, or I hope you do better next time, which is not very helpful, I can instead open this up, have a read of Luke 15, which is the story of the prodigal son, and I can say to him, hey, I know you're really struggling, but hey, there's this story in the Bible of a son who does all the wrong things, but when he eventually comes back, his father embraces him and forgives him and takes him back with love. And that's how God sees you right now. And I'm praying that you'll be able to turn back to him. Or maybe you have a friend who's going through a really serious illness. And instead of saying something simply nice, like, I hope you get better soon, or something irresponsible, like, I know God's going to heal you, don't worry. Because we don't know for sure, do we? Instead, we can turn to passages like Psalm 23, where God promises that even though we walk through the darkest valley, we don't have to fear because He's there with us. And we can remind them of that promise and that truth. So in this way, we can speak God's known general will and promises, even if we don't know His specific will. How much more encouraging is that? So friends, to live as new people in speech... Don't mask criticism as jokes. Speak to benefit others and speak God's promises. The second area that Paul instructs the Ephesians is on is forgiveness. Again, let me give you three ways we can be doing this. Firstly, in verse 26, Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In the culture of the Bible, sundown was a time limit to pay wages for your workers. In the same way, we need to be bringing our grievances to God daily. Because later on in verse 31, Paul says that the internal brooding of bitterness, rage, and anger eventually spills over to outward verbal brawling and slander. So friends, if you're angry at someone today, I'd encourage you to put reasonable limits on that anger. Sure, realistically it might take weeks to resolve, but months and years of bitterness 
is far too long. And as Paul says in verse 27, it gives the devil a foothold in your life. Secondly, let's have realistic expectations. Verse 33 says that we should be kind and compassionate or tender-hearted. All too often we struggle to forgive others and maybe even ourselves because we expect them and us to be perfect. And we think that because they're Christian that they should know better. But let's remember that we're still work in progress, that our lives are new but not finished. Let's learn to lower our expectations and extend grace. Thirdly, Paul says that we should be forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story of a servant who owed the king a great deal of money. And the king, in his grace, in his grace forgives him that huge amount. But the servant turns around to his fellow servant. He owes him a tiny bit of money. And he's strangling him and trying to get him to pay him back. And that illustrates sometimes what we do. If we understand the magnitude of what Christ has forgiven on the cross for us, surely we can forgive our fellow human beings. So to live as new people in forgiveness, put reasonable limits on anger, have realistic expectations, and forgive because you're forgiven. Friends, the next instruction comes in verse 28. Anyone who has me stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. In our society, we're so focused on building our own kingdoms, aren't we? We work hard in order to drive that new car, in order to live in that new house, and then to build up our investment portfolios to become financially free. And we do this because it makes us feel secure and successful and good in the world's eyes. But what if we worked hard so that we could have something to share with others? What if we worked hard so that new ministries can be started and more missionaries can be sent overseas so that more and more people can hear the gospel? For me to be able to do my current apprenticeship, I had to raise financial support. And uh, I can tell you I was blown away by the enormous amounts of money that some people gave to me. Now, why did these people do it? Did they, did they see something in me? Well, I don't really think so because even I'm not sure this is what I should be doing. And I think they did it because they believe that investing in the kingdom is far more valuable than investing in anything else in this world. Friends, to live as new people in generosity means to work for God's kingdom, not yours. The last command that Paul gives for new living is to walk in the way of love. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he begins by saying, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. The ESV version translates this as, Be imitators of God. Friends, in the middle here is my nephew, Daniel. He's almost two years old. And this is him just chilling at Christmas, imitating his dad and his three uncles. And as with all babies, he has this uncanny ability to just absorb everything that we do and say. He's like a sponge. He just soaks it all up. And he copies us, right? So what about us? As we read the Bible, are we eagerly looking out for what God is like? And do we soak it all up? and a desire to imitate him and reflect him and glorify him in that way. 
The Bible says that God is love. So as we follow God's example, we will learn how to love sacrificially. Secondly, verse 2 says that Christ gave himself up for us. Notice how Jesus gives himself up to die. It's not someone else dragging him to the cross. He doesn't do it begrudgingly, but he does it voluntarily. Friends, if you've been around church for a while, you realize that there's a lot of jobs that need to be done that are not very glorious. And to get away from doing them, you hang back and you just wait, and someone else does them eventually. And I'm guilty of this all the time as well. In my mind, I think, well, I'm not refusing to do these things, I'm just not volunteering. If someone asks me to do it, then of course I'll do it. That's, that's, I have that kind of sacrificial love. But, friends, I can tell you that these new toilets that we have, we were having issues with the urinals for quite some time. You know, there was, without giving you too much detail, there was pooling and smells, and it was really nasty. I'll tell you what, a sister here sorted that out. She took it upon herself to go out and buy a whole lot of different splash mats. And eventually it should be in here with gloves on and taking one out, putting the other one in, and it wasn't nice. But she did it. She volunteered for it. No one told her to do it. And that, friends, is sacrificial love. So to really love your brothers and sisters here, don't wait to be asked. Volunteer for the hard jobs. Volunteer to sacrifice. Thirdly, whenever we feel like we're sacrificing too much, loving too much without getting anything back, we can look to the cross and remember that Jesus himself hung and died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He did this out of love, even though he gets nothing back from us. You see, when we look to the cross, we can also be empowered to love in the same way as Jesus So friends, to live new lives of sacrificial love, you can imitate your father, volunteer to sacrifice, and look to the cross. If you look closely again at the passage, you may notice that there's one verse that we haven't covered yet. And it's verse 30. Take a look now. And it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You see, even though Paul gives all these instructions, what he doesn't say is, don't you dare fail any of them, because if you do, God will reject you. He doesn't say that, does he? No, instead, quite the opposite. He says that we're sealed for the day of redemption. Something that is sealed is marked permanently as belonging to somebody. Friends, when we turn away from the old life and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're given the Holy Spirit. And we're marked, we're branded as God's people. That's what Paul can tell us, to keep putting off the new, putting off the old, sorry, and putting on the new, because our relationship with God does not rely on us being good enough. Jesus' death alone purchases us and seals us to be God's people, and nothing, nothing can ever change that. The new life is a life of grace. So in today's passage, we can see that Paul calls us to live as new people in speech, in forgiveness, in generosity, and sacrificial love. 
And even when we do fail, we can keep putting off the new and putting on the old because we're forgiven through the cross of Christ. So friends, we start off today by asking the question, how can we know what is the right way to live? And today's passage has offered an answer. Firstly, the life lived apart from God has no hope and no future. So we need to leave the old life. By believing the truth that, it, that Jesus died for our sins, we can have new life. However, this life is new, but not finished. So we need to keep putting off the old and putting on the new. Practically, we do this by living as new people. So let me finish by telling you a real-life story of how this has happened for someone here. Um, her name's Susu, and you might have heard her story if you've been around for the last two weeks. So Susu's old life was all about finding acceptance and affirmation from her friends and the people around her. For her, it was an endless chase to be popular or cool and accepted or fit in. And this led her to hide who she really was. With some friends, she would act like a Christian person. With other friends, she would uh, indulge in their gossiping and do what they were doing just to fit in. And this was an endless chase that never really seemed to satisfy. But all that changed when she came to know Jesus. You see, when she knew the truth of what Jesus had done for her on the cross, that he knows all the parts of her that make her unpopular, all the parts of her that make her not fit in with anyone else. He knows all that, and yet he chose to love her, accept her, and die for her on the cross. And so, as she came to this new life, her baptism was a symbol of this immense break from the past. No longer did she have to seek affirmation from others and rely on them. But she could be free to know that she's loved, and she could just be who she really is. But even today, she shared that she still struggles with these thoughts. And she still has to depend on God to continually put off those old habits and put on her new Christ-like identity. And so day by day, she puts off the new old and puts on the new to become more like Christ in her life. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, you might be thinking, well, why do I want to live this way? Why do I need God in my life? Well, friends, I want to suggest that you need to be in relationship with God because He loves you and He created you for that specifically. See, the life apart from Him results only in an endless chasing of desires and passions that don't satisfy, and you may have experienced this. However, the new life that He offers is a life of hope and a life of truth. It's a new life that transforms our unwholesome talk to gifts of grace. It's a new life that empowers us to forgive because we've been forgiven so much. It's a new life that gives meaning and purpose to our jobs as we work for God's kingdom, not ours. And it's a new life that allows us to love sacrificially because of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. Friends, I commend this life to you not only as the right way to live, but as a great way to live. If you are a Christian today, then Paul's message for you is this. New life is for new living. Maybe over the years you've become desensitized to the sin that it, that's in your life. 
but you've heard God's word today. So start to recognize the patterns and the excuses of your old self. Start putting on the new self by being renewed in your minds with the truth that is in Jesus, that is in all of Scripture. And start putting your new Christ-like self on every single day in speech, in forgiveness, in generosity, and in sacrificial love. And know that when you fail, you're forgiven and you're safe in God's arms because of Jesus. He died on the cross to give you new life. So get serious about new living. Friends, new life is for new living. Let's pray for God's help to do that in our lives today. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross to forgive us our sins. Father, we come to you now in humility because even though we have made that move from the old life to the new, so much of our old self still rules in our hearts. Father, please help us to see the excuses that we make for ourselves, for the sin that's in our lives that's causing destruction and hindering our relationship with you. Father, we pray for the truth of Jesus on the cross to come into our minds again and again so that as we look to the cross, we can have new life. Lord, Lord, we pray that you help us to be serious about new living so that we can become more like your son day by day. In Jesus we pray, amen.